Singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. Today, my guest on the show will be David Wood. David Wood is the head behind uh, London Futurists, and uh, it's the second interview that I've ever done with him for my show. So without further ado, welcome to Singularity FM, David. It's my pleasure to be on Singularity FM, Nicola. Fantastic. So um, let's tell our audience that we had a very sort of in-depth, 90-minute long interview about two or three years ago where we did spend considerable time going into your personal background, your professional experience, the London futurists, transhumanism in general, and so on. So I recommend people start with that interview if they haven't seen it yet, because today the topic of our conversation will be your most recent book, and that's called Transcending Politics. So, but first of all, Yes, exactly. Great cover, by the way. Love the cover. It's very meaningful and very expressive. Um, Thanks. But, but uh, so for those who judge the book by the cover, I definitely love your cover. But I also have to say that I'm a lot more impressed by the book itself. It's a monumental kind of magnus, magnus opus kind of level of work uh, spanning over 400 pages that's very comprehensive, perhaps the most comprehensive transhumanist take on politics that I'm aware of, at least. Um, and it's very dense also in its writing. It covers everything that I can think of, pretty much. Um, and it it has probably enough material in it for four or five other books that you put all together into one. So, But for those of our viewers who may have missed that interview, let's start first with who you are and what you do. Can you please introduce yourself in a couple of words? My background is in the mobile computing and smartphone industry. My software, which was created by my company Symbian, which I co-founded in the late 1990s, was eventually included on half a billion of the first wave of smartphones by companies such as Nokia, Sony Ericsson, Motorola, Samsung, Fujitsu, and several others. So that's my background. I was responsible for a long time for development, then for other roles such as research. And in that role of head of research, I effectively became a futurist, though I didn't realize that was the word for a while. Since then, I've been a full-time futurist, looking not just at the future of smartphones, but effectively at the future of smart human beings. And I just noticed we're even color coordinated almost today, which is which is very cool because I, I think we have a, a grouping of the minds here, not only because we both fancy ourselves as futurists, even though, to be honest with you, I'm not quite a big fan of that word myself. I try to usually kind of consider myself more of a simple philosopher. But, I mean, like it or not, others have called me a futurist. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> that was a digression here. But, so, let's let's talk about what is your book about, David? So it's about the central importance of politics. It's about the problems that politics has currently and the risks of it getting worse under the influence of something that you and I both love, which is exponentially improving technology. 
So if we're not careful, exponentially improving technology could actually drive politics into a worse state than present, and that would be bad consequences for society. And having read your book, I'd like to, to just tweak you a little bit, your statement, because I know you can do it better. It's not exponential technology that we both love, because technology is just a means to an end. It's the results that that exponential technology can provide for us all that we both love and share that, the two of us. Technology is just this very promising tool, powerful tool that can provide those things for, for us. So I think what I meant is we both believe it's important to keep an eye on technology and the possibility that although it's a particular technology might be slow for the present time and disappointing and overhyped, it can change remarkably rapidly into this fast and furious phase. So you and I both believe we should keep an eye on that and probably most philosophers, even many futurists in the world aren't paying enough attention to these disruptive trends. But that disruptive trend, as you said, isn't a guarantee of a betterment of humanity. And a lot of what's in my book is pointing out the ways in which we could end up with a worse politics. But I also think it wisely applied, it could lead us to a much better politics. And that's the real takeaway from my book, that with the right degree of the best elements of humanity 1.0, we can improve politics and end up as politics being a vehicle to take us to humanity plus, humanity 2.0. Fantastic. And so another thing that we share, not only the colors of our shirts almost, but the idea that technology is not enough, therefore, right? The technology is necessary. In fact, our civilization, as we know it, is unable to survive without technology. And if we suddenly uh, lose all of our technology, billions of people will die immediately. But it's not enough. So tell me a little bit about that. Absolutely. So technology, for example, could make uh, us all more informed. It can make us all uh, cleverer in that aspect. But there's no guarantee that if we are more informed and if we are cleverer, that we're actually going to take better decisions. It could just lead us to take the decisions we already want to take, but it gives us more excuses for why these decisions are the right ones to take. So it can justify us in whatever our previous aspirations are. And frankly, there are lots of very clever people in the world who are quite nasty or doing nasty things. So if we use technology to magnify our human capabilities and human powers is not necessarily going to take us into an overall better place. And then almost every technology we look at, and you and I were discussing the other day about the potential of uh, synthetic chemicals, how Haber-Bosch, the two scientists who led to the creation of uh, the method to fix nitrogen out of the atmosphere into ammonia and into fertilizers, Summing that by itself led to the betterment of people's lives all over the world with improved agricultural efficiency. Some of the same people were involved in developing chemical weapons, mustard gas, and so on. Yeah, and Fritz Haber, by the way, became the stereotypical evil genius scientist uh, that many people don't know this, but if you look at his picture with his sort of uh, rimless spectacles and sort of the, the, the shaved head and all of that, he became the prototype for ma many villains in many movies. So um, I guess I share that feature with him a little bit. <laughs> to say but you don't have the glasses. 
Yeah, and I you've, actually, got more of a, you've got more of a smile. I hope so. I hope so. And, and the most important is inside, which I hopefully had. But of course, he was much, much smarter than I am, like infinitely smarter probably than I am. He was a genius in, in chemistry and in many other disciplines, which, uh, of course, goes to show you that, that even intelligence is not enough. And by the way, speaking of people that I'm kind of afraid of uh, and are very, very smart and proficient of what they're doing... Uh, and also the reason why I keep repeating that uh, human stupidity is what I'm most afraid of and not artificial intelligence as my top worst kind of uh, thing that I fear. Vladimir Putin fits the bill very well, in my opinion. He's very proficient at what he does. He's very smart um, and he's armed with nuclear weapons. So he almost has a free reign within certain very wide space that he can do almost whatever he wishes and no one dares to say or do much about it. <laughs> well, if we look at the damage that can be inflicted by powerful rulers, such as Vladimir Putin, it's not just nuclear weapons, it's nerve agents. Yeah, and killing people with nerve agents in, in, in England, or is it London even? It's a place outside London called Salisbury. Yeah, close to London. So two people are near the point of death, Others were affected too, and if that nerve agent was spread more widely, it could be a real uh, a large number of people affected. And then there's other weapons. There's uh, cyber terrorism. There's hacking into the infrastructure of other countries. So people who, for whatever reason, are pursuing their own agendas uh, can have their powers magnified, their intelligence magnified, their muscular strength magnified to outcomes that actually will be very bad for humanity. To do more damage than good. Sadly, yes. I mean, just think about this, right? If you want to kill somebody, like, let's say at some level, I can understand that you want to punish, you know, a spy that you believe betrayed your country, right? Why not just shoot the guy or something, right? Whereas you have to actually use nerve agent which is like a weapon of mass destruction. You not only kill himself, but try to kill his daughter, who has nothing to do with it. You have all kind of all kinds of collateral damage. So, for example, a police officer that went to help is in critical condition, if I'm aware. And now all the people who went to that pub that uh, the spy with his daughter went to have a drink or lunch or something, all of them have been advised to wash their clothes very carefully and etc., etc., dry clean, whatever cannot be washed, and, and so on, because they found traces of nerve agents on other stuff. <laughs> so we don't know exactly what's behind this yet, and uh, perhaps by the time people are watching this uh, recording, there'll be more news in the public domain. But we can say this, that uh, probably one reason why people would choose such a method rather than old-fashioned executions is out of an understanding of human psychology and out of an understanding of the principles of terrorism. Exactly. That such a thing uh, affects people, uh, psychology, and makes people naturally more apprehensive. And whereas before they might have thought of criticizing a politician, now they will want to shut down and be calm and be compliant. And there's another whole issue here, which is that we've got very good in understanding human psychology. And we've got uh, online social media that's very good at manipulating us, in part because companies have paid very clever people large amounts of money to make consumers click things on their websites and spend more time on their websites. And all of this, unfortunately, this skills, this social media, 
knowledge can be used to manipulate us, terrify us, incentivize us into ways that actually we, we would regret if we could think more clearly about it. So it's another example that uh, accelerating technology can lead to humanity taking a very wrong turn. Absolutely. And to be honest, just to share one, one other crazy detail, uh, me and my wife, we've been dreaming of going to visit the uh, Bolshoi Theater in the Hermitrash in uh, St. Petersburg for years. And so finally, we booked a trip for this coming summer in August. And I cannot think of another time where the sort of political relationship between Russia and the West has been at, at a low for the last maybe 10 or 15 years. And we're just about to go in August and visit uh, Red Square and St. Petersburg and so on, which we're still planning to do, of course. But I mean, I was thinking, wow, this is, this, <laughs> this is getting worse and worse all the time. So St. Petersburg is a great city, and I would urge you, if you can, to visit it. I also think that the Russian people will be a key part of building a better future. There are tremendous uh, philosophers in the Russian background. I frequently meet uh, Russians today in London and elsewhere who are very uh, attuned to the possibilities of a better life. I believe that we need to have a, an ongoing, honest dialogue with uh, Russian as a whole, just as we have uh, discussions with uh, other great nations around the world. We need to keep building bridges at the same time as we're wise to the slippery slopes that exist with the misuse of technology. Absolutely. And of course, uh, uh, Russia has very strong background, not only in science, uh, uh, but also in uh, transhumanism uh, because of Russian cosmism and so on. So for, for centuries, actually, right? Uh, and with their experience uh, in space exploration and space-related technologies, of course, Russia is definitely... Uh, a part of the future. Uh, let's hope sooner rather than later, though, in terms of that building of bridges that you're talking about. But let's go back to your book here, uh, because, of course, this is the main topic. So what is your book's thesis, David? Well, it can be expressed in three statements. Politics is broken. Technology risks making it worse. But transhumanism can fix it comprehensively. And here we use the T word. And in fact, uh, some of my early readers said to me, David, you've written an interesting book about politics. Why have you spoilt it by bringing in this crazy notions of transhumanism? <laughs> and by the way, another group of early readers said, David, you seem to have written an interesting book about transhumanism. Why have you spoilt it by having all this political discussion? Now, this isn't an accident. I very much believe that the two themes go together and that we need uh, the ideas of transhumanism which we can talk about later, to provide a vision, a vision which is going to be powerful enough to make people do the projects required to build this better future, build a better politics, which takes us to a better future. So let's take on that criticism here at the beginning, because um, I had people who send me messages about that too. Why politics? Why not just stick to science? I mean, that's the traditional criticism that you could expect from the core of the transhumanist community, which has predominantly been scientifically oriented and not so much about politics, let alone taking political action, with some notable exceptions that we will be, recent notable exceptions that we can discuss later. But why do you think politics? So I'm a huge fan of the scientific method. One of my 
things that I studied for four years, in fact, in my university days was the philosophy of science. I very much believe that uh, the scientific method, which is quite a complex thing, it's not just a simple thing, but it is uh, a sure way for a great deal of progress to be made. So I'm a big fan of doing as much science as possible. And I actually call technocracy one of the four pillars of the techno-progressive worldview, in my, uh, as I see it. But uh, politics is getting in the way. Politics is actually an important part of human life. Politics, as I define it, is uh, how we take collective decisions on constraints and our freedom. So some people say, I don't want any constraints in my freedom, thank you very much. But then we can point to all kinds of examples when probably they will say, ah, yes, it probably is good that there's some constraints, whether it's in the, which vehicles people are allowed to drive on the road, in which circumstances, that drivers need to pass tests, that vehicles need to be certified as roadworthy and that they're not emitting too much pollution. There are important principles for health and safety at work. There are important principles that we shouldn't be openly experimenting with nerve agents, for example. <laughs> So we can easily come up with lists. And there is even international they, conventions on weapons of mass destruction and chemical warfare and stuff like yeah. that. So most people will accept that there is some uh, set of constraints that we should collectively uh, agree to follow. And that's what politics is. And many of the technologies that you and I may be discussing are all uh, two-edged swords. They could, if used foolishly, if built without proper attention to health and safety matters, uh, become huge sources of regret, things that people didn't anticipate in advance. So that's what politics is. It's about uh, specifying the regulations, and in some cases, the incentives to encourage some types of behavior and uh, discourage others. It also has the very important role of uh, monitoring the operation of the free market. We may talk about this more later. I'm a big fan of the free market, but there are such things as market failures and the government has the ability to help prevent market failures. So politics is very important, but uh, currently it is broken, and many of the positive humanitarian initiatives that are underway, developing new treatments for many kinds of diseases, experimental new treatments, they are subject to over-heavyweight regulations. And frequently, turns out that many of the vested interests in society, the people who are doing quite well out of the old ways of operating. An example might be the arms industry. Another example might be the oil industry. They're doing quite well out of many of the current systems. And so they are influencing the regulations and the set of subsidies so that their, in, their industries remain favorably supported. So the current politics is far from ideal and it's probably going to make things worse. So we have to get in, and rather than saying there should be no politics, which I don't think is feasible at all, we have to say, let's have better politics. Rather than saying, let's have no regulations, let's have smart regulations. Mm -hmm. And uh, one part that I, I really like at the beginning of your book is where you say that um, we can get everything right, we can fix everything, but if politics remains broken, we uh, can still go extinct. Whereas, therefore, these, um, the, the, the survival and the thriving of the human race in the 21st century goes through politics, therefore. 
right? So I, I totally agree with that claim. And it also goes through international politics because you may have a, a country that actually is very well organized and peaceable, but then the mistakes made elsewhere in the world will uh, sabotage it in various ways, whether it's a, a runaway global warming, whether it's radioactive fallout, whether it's cyber terrorism run, running amok. So we have to engage locally, we have to engage nationally, and we have to engage supranationally. Okay, great. So let's go step by step sort of through your book and see if we can help uh, our listeners and our viewers sort of get the idea and the argument behind it. So another major part is um, in order to get into the content of the book is we have to get three definitions out of the way. And those are the definitions of what is to be human, what is to be transhuman, or transhumanism, and then what is transpolitics? Yes. So let's start with what is human, because that's kind of like basic. But I'm afraid that for the last, I don't know, two, three thousand years, as a civilization, we have not reached a commonly shared definition of what it means to be human. Would you like to disagree with that? No, uh, people still argue bitterly over what the basis for ethics is and uh, what are the most important things in life. Historically, we had uh, often spiritual or supernatural conceptions of the purpose of humanity. These still influence public thinking a lot, but uh, as they have tended to decline under the growth of uh, skepticism, what's come in place has been... Uh, the view of man as humans as being consumers. And so the most important metric has been, let's improve the GDP. Let's have more economic activity. And that uh, is an important part of the progress of humanity, but it's far from being the total picture. And I can even quote from the New Testament, man does not live on bread alone. You know, we need, we need more than economic progress. So a key part of being human is our social tendencies, uh, desires planted in deep by evolution, no doubt, to connect and to be in a community that broadly shares our perspectives and which uh, where we can shine. So we have these attributes. We have a mix of uh, angelic attributes and we might even call them devilish attributes. We've inherited that from evolution, which uh, had to deal with different circumstances from today. So we've got sweet tooth implanted in us. Uh, we can fight against it, of course. It sort of made sense historically that when there was uh, sugar, then we would take it. We've got uh, historically uh, fear of the other because uh, when we saw people... But I'm trying, if we were to boil all, all of those down into like a sentence or two as a definition of humanity, what's yours? So I'm not sure I've actually got a definition of humanity in the book. I would say you that don't. we are. That's why I'm pushing you. <laughs> yes. So we are, so far, we are the outcome of a complex evolutionary process, which has given us the ability to reflect on uh, where we've come from and where we want to go to. And we have a consciousness and a feeling, uh, which again has been given rise by evolution. And the question is, where next? And that question is up to us. So we are self designing sentient conscious beings if I would think I would put I would put the word social in there as well if I would to 
have another go at it. I think of all the diversity of definitions that I've heard out there, Ray Kurzweil's definition would fit the best probably with your thesis. Uh, tr- that human is the species that transcends its current limitations or current condition. It's kind of like a precursor to transhuman and uh, transpolitics. But anyway, so... Um, yeah, so I mean, on that, uh, it is human nature to try and improve upon nature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Brilliant. Excellent. Okay, so then what's transhumanism then? So transhumanism is the view that we can and should use technology to transcend the limits that we've inherited from our human nature and therefore transition to a higher state of being individually and collectively. And then what is transpolitics? Transpolitics is the view that we can use technology wisely and profoundly to improve upon the way politics is currently operated, including its divisiveness, its party, political nature, and that we can uh, rediscover the, the good aspects of politics and ensure that they flourish free from the damaging historical limitations. Mm-hmm. So what's the sort of general vision behind your book? As I said, it's a monumental book, over 400 and some pages, very densely written, comprehensively covering everything from medicine to politics to uh, economics to history to even sociology, like everything pretty much. So what's the vision that unites all of that? Well, one of the visions is a vision. In other words, that in order to do better as a society, better as a people, we need something that's going to touch people in their heart rather than just uh, show them, hey, your GDP might increase if you do this. And so historically, such a vision was provided by things like nationalism, or religion, or possibly something like Marxism, which would uh, position people as part of a historical uh, struggle. So I think transhumanism can fulfill that that gap. Transhumanism says that we are not going to stay where we are. We're not going to go backwards. The vision is not to go back to the 1970s or the 1950s or whatever you might think was a time when your nation was great. The way forwards is to hasten on the sustainable abundance for everybody, a sustainable abundance for everybody, which uh, technology can provide. So in a way you're saying, look, just like transhumanism said that humanism is the beginning, but transhumanism is sort of the next step. Transcending humanism is transhumanism. Likewise, politics Transpolitics is the the continuation of politics. It's the transcending of politics with the help of science and technology and therefore overcoming the previously previously, uh, commonly presumed uh, sort of political limitations. So I'm not the first person to say this, of course. I can look at FM 2030, who in the 1970s already was saying Uh, We shouldn't be constrained by ideas of left-wing versus right-wing. We should be looking instead up, up meaning applying technology to get us into space, which is up, but also metaphorically moving us forwards. 
So I entirely agree with that. I don't think it takes away some of the discussion between left wing and right wing. But what I'm trying to do in my book is to flesh out the idea that the most important thing is to appreciate the remarkable transformational capability of technology and to ensure that it's steered wisely so we can quickly move beyond our present state of danger and uh, turmoil and get into uh, a sustainable, positive abundance. So in a way, transpolitics is about transcending the traditional left-right divide and replacing it with a sort of commonly unified one of up and forward and up, if you will. Yes. It doesn't take away, as I said, all the questions about when should we be intervening uh, to guide the free market. It doesn't uh, solve all these issues as to how we should have a social safety net. Yeah, we'll get get into those later. Yes. So I'm trying to flesh out that uh, remarkable vision that FM 2030 had. Yes. FM 2030 was a fantastic visionary in many ways, by the way. Um, He wasn't too good on the sort of the nitty gritty, sort of the scientific end of things. Um, uh, Not even always like too sort of um, um, logically coherent, but very good in terms of the visions uh, and looking forward. That's, I think, where his unique contribution and, and sort of even genius lied, I think. Uh, And a very poetic vision even, too, by the way. Anyway, um, you start uh, your book in the beginning by saying, there is no escape, that's a quote, there is no escape. The journey to a healthier society inevitably involves politics, end of quote. Now, so that's kind of addressing what we were talking about up to now, but I want to ask you to talk about the next part, which is, that's a message, and that's a quote again, quote, that's a message many technologists and entrepreneurs are unwilling to hear, end of quote. Why do you think that's been the case? Why do technologists and entrepreneurs have historically preferred to stay away from politics? And why do you think now is the time where we can no longer do that? So politics has been nasty and messy and immature and uh, debased. And many people who look at politics, they say, oh my goodness, I don't want anything to do with this. The tribalism, the ganging up on each other, the shouting, yabu. We have this in the House of Commons in uh, London. Uh, It's remarkable theater in some ways, but uh, people think this is not the, the right way to go forwards. So they're repulsed for these reasons. And there's also the hope that, you know, a lot of what happens in science or technology, a lot of what businesses can do, will suddenly make a lot of the political discussion irrelevant. That politicians might uh, be talking about various things and suddenly Elon Musk has created uh, batteries that last much longer and Bill Gates has come up with a solution for uh, smallpox or uh, malaria rather. And so that these great entrepreneurs will solve problems which uh, politicians have been bickering about and not making any progress. So that's a nice, positive vision. But sad to say, I think uh, we can't get away from the political discussion. We have to decide and to what extent do we trust the entrepreneurs like Elon Musk and Bill Gates to do things. And actually, they need to be constrained as much as anybody else. They might be wise. They might be clever. But they... Uh, 
their businesses are subject to commercial pressures. They've got their own egos which are fueling them. So we can't just sit back and say, let the entrepreneurs do whatever they like. In fact, there's a long history of people being uh, positive entrepreneurs, uh, being respectful of consumers and customers at the early stage of their careers and later on becoming more monopolistic, losing touch. And I give various examples in my book as uh, like Standard Oil in the one place and Microsoft in another place. They started off winning their battles by technological innovation and business in innovation. And later on, they exploited their positions with uh, monopolies. So we can't just trust these guys, uh, inspiring though they are, that we need to have a collective discussion as to what their goal should be. Elon Musk himself has gone on the record numerous times by now, by the way, calling for regulation on artificial intelligence, for example. Right. So he is himself of the belief that at least in this case, in the case of artificial intelligence, we do need sort of a, a government uh, and, 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 and maybe uh, not only governmental, but international sort of a comprehensive regulatory framework within which we can safely develop artificial intelligence. Um, so yeah, he agrees with that. But but again, I want to stress here, and we touched upon that with the technology is not enough thesis that I've been espousing for as many years as I can remember now, that usually I think entrepreneurs and technologists have the presumptions that all problems are engineering problems, ultimately. And therefore, if you have a technical solution that works, they would claim, then problem solved. But you claim that that's insufficient. You claim that you can't do it without politics. And I agree with that, by the way. Tell us why. Tell us more. Because I still, I want to stress that point because I expect people would disagree with you, would push back very strongly on this very idea that there is more than technological solution that's required, in, let alone political one. <laughs> I think I've probably got two sections in my book in two different chapters, each called uh, technology is not enough, as it happens. One of them's in the, yeah, one of them's on the chapter on healthcare, when I say, well, why, why aren't we have improving health, given all the wonderful technological in innovations that people are proposing? Why have these technological ideas, such as electronic health records and so on, not delivered? Uh, and then later on, and this is the example I'll probably talk about here, uh, it's in the chapter on uh, climate change. It's called energy and emissions. And I have no doubt there are technological solutions to the risks uh, of a runaway climate change. We have the possibilities of solar energy and other green technologies. We have possibilities of carbon extraction, uh, carbon capture and storage, for example. And so in principle, technology is there. But what is preventing that technology being deployed? And often it's uh, the long set of subsidies. Uh, it's the fact that the oil industry is actually being subsidized by not having to pay properly for all uh, the negative externalities it causes. Uh, the International Monetary Fund, I believe, assessed this uh, annual implicit subsidy as being something like $5 trillion annually which is more than all the healthcare budgets of all the world added together, or sort of comparable magnitude. So in order to accelerate an adoption of green energies, I think we would need to put a fair price on the use of carbon fuels. 
uh, but that uh, has been held up and not implemented. There are some positive examples when we look at, for example, the problems with the ozone layer, which uh, various uh, politicians identified. Margaret Thatcher in the UK was uh, alert to that, and uh, as a chemist by her first training, she she was uh, sensitive to that. And uh, amongst other people, they helped to set the economic framework in which then the free market and entrepreneurs and technologists could come up with a solution. But until the price for carbon is set properly and accepted, I don't think we're going to have sufficient uh, compulsion to move on uh, as quickly as needed towards uh, a green use of energy. So let's say we agree on the claim that, or the, the, the claim that you put forward that there is no escape and we must inevitably go through politics to solve the, the humanity's grand challenges, if you will. What is the solution? Why is it transhumanism that you believe is the solution and how so, if that's the case indeed? So, as I said, transhumanism is the idea we should be applying technology to overcome our inherited weaknesses, whether it's inherited in our biology or inherited in the social systems that grew up as responses to our problems in our biology. So, Transhumanism says, let's say, not take everything for granted and say, well, this is how it is, therefore, this is how it must be. So, for example, in fixing the problems of healthcare, I think we can have a much more uh, radical approach to keeping people healthier. Rather than trying to patch up individual diseases, uh, we can uh, approach the biggest remaining cause of death, which is aging. There have been three big theories about the causes of diseases in history. First big theory is it's due to bad behavior. You know, we're too lazy or we're too gluttonous or we're too angry or too lustful. And so we should behave better and repent and pray. And that fixed some problems. Then people realized even if they were behaving well, they still fell foul of lots of diseases. So then eventually people discovered the cleanliness and vaccinations and they discover the germ theory of disease and they realize actually if they bring in these principles of better hygiene and sterilization and pasteurization then lots of other diseases became uh, tamed which weren't being tamed so that was the second big theory and transhumanism in effect offers a third theory as to the causes of the remaining diseases which are still so prevalent like uh, dementia and cancer and heart disease which is the aging of the body that as we live, our bodies gradually deteriorate, they accumulate various kinds of damage. Transhumanism says if we invest more effort in addressing this, much more effort than is currently the case, we have to tilt the balance. There's huge efforts on testing drugs against cancer. There should be more effort on testing drugs against aging. If we can do that, of course, it'll cost more money in the short term, but in the longer term, we will uh, have a much more effective solution to the very expensive diseases of aging. So that's one example of taking that transhumanist vision. So let's say we have an agreement over the fact that we need, we must do politics to solve our problems. We have an agreement that transhumanism or trans politics provides the solution to those problems to solve politics, to transcend politics, as you say it. Then what is the best vehicle? Are you 
in favor of starting your own, and are you planning of start, starting or launching your own transhumanist party, uh, be it in the United Kingdom, be it elsewhere, or are you offering your book as a platform to other parties or both? So full disclosure, I did found a political party or helped to found a political party called the Transhumanist Party in the UK more than three years ago. That was an experiment. We thought we, we don't know the, the right way forward. Maybe we should create a party. And that party still exists today. And it probably will take some role in, a, I hope, a, highlighting some of the ideas from my book and uh, sharing them in a campaigning way. But at the same time, as uh, some of us were involved in founding the Transhumanist Party as a single pressure group, we also thought, you know what, uh, it's, very, it's a long task to get a, a new party into power. And actually, there are men and women of goodwill in almost every other political party, people who are in various ways sympathetic to at least some of the ideas of uh, transhumanism and trans politics. So I created this uh, think tank called Transpolitica. And uh, the goal of that was stated to help uh, people of all political parties and no political parties to see how they could get involved in campaigns to promote some of the transhumanist ideals. So you can support, for example, addressing aging as the root cause of disease, whether you are historically a Republican or a Democrat or a Green or a Libertarian, you can all get behind that. And so, yes, my book is designed to provide arguments and encouragement to people in all parties and also people who don't, don't yet feel at home in a party. Mm -hmm. Last time we touched a little bit about the launching of the Transhumanist Party in the United Kingdom, as well as Transpolitica. Um, what's the latest update on the party, though? Because I, I admit I, I haven't been following up on it for the last couple of years. So can you give, give us the latest update? How about membership or does it field candidates in writings and does it have any specific plans for the next elections, etc.? So we're keeping our options open. We've had one candidate for one election, which was way back in 2015. Seems like decades ago now. It was only three years ago. And by that stage, as it happens, we hadn't got our official registration in place. And so the candidate in question, Alexander Karan, stood as an independent but on a transhumanist platform. And through that experiment, I'm very much in favor of uh, progressing by experimenting. It's one of the principles I hold out in terms of how we can go forward. Rather than ideology, it's uh, practical experimentation. Through that, we realized, actually, this is pretty tough. You know, it's even hard to get the number of signatures to stand as a candidate. And so we thought maybe in the future, uh, it could be that the electoral circumstances will change and it'll be easier for third parties to make an impact. But for the foreseeable future, we haven't got any plans to stand candidates. And instead, we, the party is more likely to be a campaigning organization in which it will actually, from time to time, hold meetings. In terms of the membership, I think it's uh, less than 100 people are paying uh, annual membership. Uh, so we still charge an annual membership. I think it's £25. Uh, whereas I know there's uh, some other parties, the U.S. Transhumanist Party has gone completely free. And that's something we might do in the UK as well. Mm. Yeah, I'm actually planning to interview Gennady Stuliarov, who is the new leader of the uh, US Transhumanist Party. And so 
I'll be doing that interview um, on March 31st, so it should be public a week, uh, the week afterwards. Um, but what's your take on the U.S. Transhumanist Party then? I actually like the way they've evolved. What they're doing is they, they have uh, some internal discussions on planks and platforms, and they set various ideas up, which the membership discuss and vote on, and then they become adopted as planks. They have uh, principles at the heart of their movement, which uh, I like. Uh, so I remember them off the top of my head. One of them is a commitment to science and rationality. Another is a commitment to uh, being aware of uh, existential problems uh, of technology. And I think the third one is possibly the support of uh, anti-aging. I actually have a little section about them in the appendix of my book. At the appendix, or rather the afterword, I list, here's, here's a number of communities. If you've been interested, I say to the reader, if you've been interested in some of the ideas, uh, it's easier for you if you can connect to an existing community rather than just uh, be buffeted as an individual. So, and I was happy to endorse as a good home for uh, a lot of discussions, the US Transhumanist Party, which despite being a US uh, in its name, accepts uh, uh, members uh, with certain standing from all over the world. So it is uh, an important movement. So it is grossly unfair of me to say that the US Transhumanist Party is like a nine rand book reading club. <laughs> so there are people there who are sympathetic to at least some of the ideas of uh, objectivism, if I remember that the name properly from uh, Ayn Rand. Uh, but there are lots of others who would by no means fit that description. Very well, we'll see what Gennady will have to say about that when we have him on my show. <laughs> And I'm interested in dialoguing with uh, people who would describe themselves as techno-libertarians or techno-objectivists. I... They should be part of the conversation. Of course, of course. It's just an interesting observation to me that uh, a lot of the people, like Gennady himself, Peter Voss, uh, Zoltan Istvan, of course, who was the founder of the party, originally now stepped aside, uh, and as well as the most sort of proactive people there, it seems to me have very heavy objectivist intellectual leanings, to say the least. Uh, if and, and the other thing is also the sort of uh, division, if you will, intellectual diversity is better. Diversity is better word, but between let's say the East Coast and the West Coast, uh, as well as let's say the U.S. Transhumanist Party and the U.K. Transhumanist Party, which seems to be a lot more progressive uh, in, in, my, in my view, at least, in my interpretation. So one of the goals of my book is to set out some uh, hard uh, choices and analysis. So people who previously might have thought of themselves as being dyed in the wool techno-libertarians, or some other people thought of themselves as dyed in the wool uh, anti-techno-libertarians, say, they will find actually they have more in common with each other and that the, my analysis will raise questions, which uh, in some cases I don't know the answers to. I've only got a sketch of an answer. And hopefully then this will uh, help the movement as a whole to move forwards. With its diversity, with its different inclinations, I do describe the vision I offer in the book as integrative, by which I mean that it will allow people who are instinctively pro-free market and also others who are instinctively pro-solidarity and the social support, that both of them will find a role 
in this uh, broader movement that I hope to paint. Very cool. And this is one of the reasons why I like your, your book so much. Um, and you even go as far as sort of creating a synthesis, if I may call it, between those two wings by combining sort of the techno-libertarian and the techno-progressive, not in equal measures, perhaps, because, perhaps because you still call it techno-progressive, but you still you also call it transhumanism, and you do try to bring the best of both worlds, if you will. So can you tell us a little more about what exactly do you mean by techno-progressive transhumanism? What is it? It's an emphasis on the social dimension as well as on the individual dimension. So techno-libertarians, emphasizing, as the name implies, liberty, freedom. And I'm all in favor of freedom and liberty as well. But I may take my definition of freedom more from uh, F.D. Roosevelt, who said there are four freedoms we need to worry about. It's not just freedom of speech and freedom of religion. It's also freedom from want and freedom from fear. In order to actually have these freedoms, we need to uh, ensure that society is uh, sufficiently well-structured. So, uh, but the techno-libertarians see many faults and problems, which are genuine faults and problems in over-heavyweight regulatory systems. And when they point out the ways in which the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, has gone beyond its uh, core mandate, in which, uh, not particularly intended to, but it is uh, impeding in some cases necessary innovation, then we should listen to that. And I, I, I refer at several stages to a very interesting book by Bill Falloon, uh, yes, Pharmocracy, uh, perhaps, which is the combination of a bureaucracy and uh, the pharmacological industry. And I, and I am very sympathetic to his analysis. So I think we can learn. Those of us who are instinctively pro-intervention uh, can learn from uh, that, that dialogue. Yeah, you make great points and give fantastic examples there. I mean, Bill does, where certain drugs, for example, are 23 times more expensive because they're so heavily regulated and create actually barriers to entry for new competitors, rather than if they were to be manufactured by sort of generic uh, alternative uh, manufacturers, which can still, by the way, uh, undergo the same sort of inspection and uh, sort of purity and 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 cleanliness and so on that everyone else does, right? So uh, and the cost is is increased by twenty three x, which is a, a sort of a shocking amount of profit, if you if you ask me. Yes. So the kind of regulations I want, I've called them smart. Another way to call them is lean. And this is from my background in the software uh, development industry. The idea of lean, which is you focus strongly on the things that make the biggest difference. You don't try and regulate everything just out of the sake, for the sake of it or out of some sense of, well, this might go wrong one time in a thousand, so we need to check this as well. We figure out where the most important regulations are at a particular time. And then another principle is the principle of agility, which is that the regulations that make sense at one stage may often turn out to be less sensible within a short space of time. So we should be re- ready to modify them. And that requires, again, an agility, uh, flexibility that many traditional regulatory systems currently don't have. And we can aid all this with technology. 
technology can more quickly find out the impact of these regulations. It can collect data and it can highlight cases of oh, people are following this. They thought it would be sensible, but in fact, these regulations are having these bad consequences. And we can weigh it up, not on the basis of anecdote, anecdote to start, uh, when people uh, experience uh, an individual bad case, sometimes they extrapolate from that too much and say, therefore, this regulation is no, no, no good at all. What we need is to collect uh, sufficient data, analyze it with the power of new technology, and then uh, come up with uh, recommendations for how the smallest and most effective regulatory system will keep us safe and will also promote the innovation which will take us to a better future. Okay, so, so far we've gone through the ideas that uh, in order to solve humanity's grand challenges in the 21st century, inevitably we must go through politics. Then we agreed that politics is broken. Then we agreed that transhumanism would offer a new solution of fixing that politics and especially what you call techno-progressive transhumanism. What's the roadmap though? How do we implement those suggestions? And most importantly, where do we begin? What's the first most important thing, highest priority item perhaps on your roadmap that we need to apply, start applying these things? So what I have said is that I want to collect a knowledge base together of the actual issues uh, where technical technical interventions could make a difference. So there already is such a knowledge base. It's called H pluspedia, which is, if you like, a very little brother of Wikipedia. Wikipedia is a tremendous resource for all kinds of information. It's one of the really positive outcomes of the use of technology. It's boosted a community that's collected uh, understanding together, but it's often shied away from looking at uh, transhumanist issues properly. And it's got its own principles, which make sense for, for themselves. So what uh, Chris Montero, another member of the Transhumanist Party in the UK, and myself have done with support from quite a few others, is to collect ideas in this uh, wiki called Hpluspedia on matters to do with transhumanism, techno-progressive ideas, futurism. And so what I'm hoping, and what is uh, starting to take place already, is that we will be better at collecting this information and collectively reviewing it, collectively saying, this is actually a better proposal. This is how the FDA is working today. This is how could the FDA could work better, or in different countries. This is the regulations that people are proposing for artificial general intelligence. Uh, here are some other possibilities. So let's collect this information together. And along the way, what I'm hoping is that people will actually come back to me and say, well, David, you wrote this in your book. Uh, I agree with you 70%, but here's another 30% where I don't think you've uh, properly covered it. And I may well say, well, it's true. You know, I didn't think this through as fully as I would have liked. And so the first thing then is to build a shared knowledge base. And some of this already exists in a different form in the planks, which I mentioned from the transhumanist party in the, in the US. Some of it exists in various forms on the writings of another think tank I need to mention, which is the IEET the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technology. Over the years, it's collected a large number of interesting analysis and articles. Uh, it needs to be wikified, uh, however, some of that insights. And so let's collect that information together. So that's the first thing. Be aware of uh, the proposals. Be collectively aware of the weaknesses and uh, possible criticisms of the proposals. And then uh, 
flesh out the, the gaps. Yeah, so th just to be clear and, and to summarize it, you're saying the first thing is to get a database going on? Well, the database is there. H Pluspedia is already about two years old. It wasn't created just for politics. It was created to try and capture the, the best analysis of transhumanism. And along the way, we've collected quite a few things about radical life extension and some of the exponential technologies. So Wikipedia sometimes covers that very well, but uh, there are other places where it hasn't gone into it. So it's also a who's who, a rudimentary who's who. There are many big names missing. There are people whose uh, pages are missing altogether or rudimentary. But it's the start of documenting in an accessible, credible way the pros and cons of different approaches to transhumanism, including transhumanist politics. Mm -hmm. Before we... Yeah, before we talk about the second step, let me ask you this though, because you're a physicist, right? So physicists or mathematicians too, because you're both, I don't know. Are you a physicist or a mathematician more accurately? So my first degree was in mathematics, but in Cambridge that's split between pure mathematics on the one hand and the other departments called applied mathematics and theoretical physics. And I was very interested in the theoretical physics. And then my second degree, uh, which I never quite finished, but it would have been a PhD in the philosophy of physics, uh, in particular in about quantum mechanics. So uh, I, I can put my hand up and say, yes, I'm a mathematician. That was my first love. And absolutely, I'm fascinated by physics as well. Okay, so in either case, though, usually you're used to starting with first principles, right? Fundamental principles. So what would be the fundamental principles embedded in a techno-progressive transhuman politics? So I come up with uh, a set of Manhattan-style projects, projects which I believe society should be putting much more effort behind, including next-generation green technology, including uh, hurrying up with synthetic biology so that we will have a... But those are examples of application. I'm asking about the first principles. So... Like the scientific method and so on. Yes. Well, I, I set out four pillars of techno-progressive thinking. There is, I called it technocracy, which is uh, using scientific principles, peer review, experimentation. Second principle was transhumanism itself, which is the vision that uh, we're not trying to make a good job of where we are today. We're trying to get to a much better future. The third principle I set up was super democracy, which is that the answers to these questions uh, will be arrived at by involving all people who are impacted and that the benefits of the technology we must have a strong confidence will flow out to everybody rather than just to the 1%. And then the fourth principle is that of urgency, or I call it exponential urgency, which is, you know, this isn't just a casual trip, a casual walk in the park. It's not something that you might do occasionally. If we don't uh, do this quickly, I'm not saying we should do a rush job, but we have to focus on it hard, then we run the risk that uh, bad trends will overtake our intentions at good trends. So these are the four principles. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, of course, the first one is the scientific method. We, all of uh, all of us have great respect for that. Um, but someone would say, 
look, the scientific method doesn't even seem to be working rather well in academia, where where you have all those scientists, and it doesn't even work for them, right? So how in the world would it work in politics when you don't even have scientists? At least in academia, you have scientists, and the scientific method still doesn't seem to work there among themselves. How is it going to work between among lawyers and businessmen and politicians and lobbyists and all those other people? So I wouldn't say the scientific method isn't working in science. In academia, in science, it works in academia. Yes. So I would say it's working quite well, but it's far from being ideal. And in part, it's because academia has got uh, its own perverse incentives. It's developed its own league table methods. I do cover this uh, at a section at the end of uh, the third chapter, uh, Science and Spirit, when I look at a number of criticisms of relying too much on science, uh, which people have made, and I think there's uh, a merit in all these criticisms. But in terms of the scientific uh, method not being followed properly, we can look at the, the writings of people like Ben Goldacre in his book, Bad Pharma, and another book, Bad Science, in which people don't uh, publish uh, failures to replicate. They say, well, this is a bit boring. I won't publish it. You know, it, was a, it wasn't a positive result. And so because these things aren't published, then we get a skewed impression as to what works and what doesn't work, because all the published uh, articles uh, all seem to show that the treatments work. So that's one of many things. So I think I'm just looking at the page now. There's uh, Academia has a huge money problem. Too many studies are poorly designed. Replicating results is critical but rare. Peer review is broken. Too much science is locked behind paywalls. Science is poorly communicated. And last but not least, life as a young academic is incredibly stressful. And I know some young academics, and I, I know all that's true. And this came from a survey amongst the academic, the science academics themselves. So they're aware of the issues, and being aware of the issues is the first step to fixing matters. And that same report, which I reference in the end of chapter three of my book, come up with a lot of detailed proposals for how things could be fixed. Now, I'm not expecting they will all be fixed straight away, and I certainly don't want people to think, well, science isn't working, therefore we're going to do the opposite of science. We're going to do chanting and uh, voodoo <laughs> and whatever. Uh, so we have to apply science better rather than switching away from science altogether. And the, the complaint, I guess, uh, which I would share, is that sometimes people have a, a cartoon impression of what science is all about. So sometimes, for example, you can't do a double-blind test. Uh, Double-blind test works in some cases. There are other kinds of experiments in which you can't do it. Well, that just shows you we need a richer set of understanding of what the scientific method's about. We need to learn these principles. We need to teach at school not just the outcomes of science, not just the products of science, but also the methods of science so that people will appreciate what's involved. And a rich awareness of different kinds of science, uh, the history of science. So I'm very much, as I as though I'm a futurist and want to emphasize the future, I believe we get a better insight into future possibilities by being more aware of what actually happened in history. We can talk about paradigm changes. We can talk about the ways in which people followed the principles that made sense once upon a time and were too stuck to these principles and weren't sufficiently open to an evolution of the scientific method. So that's what I'm arguing for. Well, another reason why people sort of fail or, or to apply fully or properly the scientific method 
is perhaps because they embrace the principle of urgency, first and foremost, right? Especially if you're in the business world, right? Even in academia, right? You have the publish and perish kind of imperative. Uh, so if you don't publish a paper every two years or something, then you're sort of falling behind and you, you're you sort of not at the cutting edge. You start to lose the prestige. You don't get invited to those conferences. You don't get tenured or something like that. But in the uh, software world, world in particular, you give the Facebook example where the principle, the modus operandi of the company that was inscribed on the wall of their headquarters was move fast and break things, right? So, and that kind of a little bit goes maybe with the sort of libertarian point of view, even if you will, to, to a certain degree is that everything that's an impediment towards speed and more speed is, is a bad thing. <laughs> so why is that not the case in your opinion? Why shouldn't we go fast and break things? Well, I like the saying that's described as an African proverb. If you want to go fast, go along. Sorry, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. If you want to really achieve bigger things, uh, just rushing uh, isn't the right way to do it. So when I said one of the pillars of the techno-progressive worldview is exponential urgency, I qualified it by saying, well, I don't mean everybody should rush. I mean, people should be very focused and people should figure out practically uh, how, how to go. And it's not just one sprint, it's a series of sprints. Uh, so you think, oh, what can you do this chunk? And you do it, and then you review it. That's the principle of Agile. You do something and then you reflect. Well, has it actually got what we expected it? Uh, and uh, you have to take the time for that retrospective. And uh, people who are not used to Agile often skimp the retrospectives and they don't do it properly. But it is so important that we take the time to reflect. And that will actually get us further and better. It may be important, but when you have, you know, a billion users and multi-billion dollars, like if you're Apple or if you're Google or if you're Facebook, you just need to ship it. <laughs> and you have deadline and your bonus depends on that and your Christmas vacation depends on that and your promotion depends on that. And look, in the end of the day, you're not producing weapons of mass destruction. You're creating a little narrow AI for Siri or you're doing software update for iOS or you're doing an upgrade for the Facebook platform or something like that. What's wrong with that? Well, I, I, the problem is that it seems the first, at first that it's a harmless little thing. The people who were involved in the early days in Facebook knew that they were exploiting quirks in human psychology, but they sort of shrugged and said, well, it's just a bit of fun. Uh, it's a way to make money and no lasting harm will be done. Whereas now, many of the initial employees of Facebook are expressing a lot of re regret that they didn't think through what might happen, especially when it's put to them that perhaps, and it's unclear, perhaps this uh, contributed to some of the results of various elections or referendum, that it might have uh, tipped the balance between uh, Hillary Clinton being president and Donald Trump being president. Still, I think the jury's out in that particular question. Then some of these early employees are thinking, oh my God, what have I done? And uh, what they should have done uh, is think a little bit more carefully what the longer term consequences. And so this uh, concern for consequences is a very important principle of uh, transhumanism. Transhumanism has always said, if you go and look at the canonical document, the nearest thing there is to a canonical document in transhumanism is the transhumanist uh, declaration. 
And I think out of the eight clauses, four of these clauses refer to possible bad scenarios, which need to be thought through in advance. And it turns out that many of the areas of life in which people previously thought, hey, what's going to go wrong if our software's got bugs, actually are much more deadly than before. If there's bugs in the system to control driverless cars, it might not just be one person who is killed. Uh, some uh, malevolent person or agency might uh, make all the driverless cars turn right at the same time out of a sense of uh, whatever malicious uh, glee. So we have to change the attitude to, yes, urgency, but done with safety in mind. I think the, the urgency here stems rather often in Silicon Valley from the inherent uh, push to scale up and to monetize, right? So everything that's been born there is about scale it up as fast as you possibly can and cash it, cash it out, start making money, monetize it as fast as you can. And if you can't, you have a big problem. And that's like the most urgent thing. So I think, yeah, maybe let's say Russia or whoever got involved with fake news on Facebook and publishing those fake stories was malicious. But the people who created that platform or that opportunity, they were not malicious. They were just simply trying to make money by sort of monetizing the platform, by bringing eyeballs to content uh, without sort of thinking through what political implications even that could have in the long term. <laughs> so one of the positive examples I point to in the chapter on effectively algorithms and uh, AI uh, taking more control over society is chapter five. I call it surveillance and security. At the end, I talk at some length about the partnership on AI uh, and the conferences which took place uh, under the support of people like Elon Musk and uh, Jan Talon and Max Tegmark. Um, the principles there emphasize, okay, all these great big companies, we have a common interest in not unduly racing each other. You know, if we end up in an unproductive race, we will all regret the outcomes. So we have to somehow coordinate our efforts. And I don't think this is easy, but I'm very pleased to see the conversation has started. And there's very serious people looking at now. How can we combine innovation with safety? And it's the same thing we've been talking about all this uh, whole uh, discussion. What is the right set of regulations that need to be applied? And how do we enforce them? How do we ensure that people aren't cheating on them? And that's the proper task for 21st century politics, not to scrutinize every area. And you're, of course, referring to the Asilomar conference on beneficial AI. Which I, I think people should go and check out the videos online. They're pretty uh, informative and, and, and very, very good to see. Um, but let me ask you this. So we were talking about sort of the elements of techno-progressive transhumanism, but someone might say, well, David, this sounds a, an awful lot like technocracy to me, or does it? How is it different from pre what, what we would call a technocracy? Why is it not a technocracy? Why does it go beyond that? So I offer four things altogether. And one of the principles which I mentioned alongside technocracy was super democracy. So technocracy means we try and get the best qualified person to decide. 
Uh, if you want to decide how a farm should be run, you don't ask a plumber to cast a vote. Unless you happens to be a, a plumber who is an educated farmer too. And so uh, that's what technocracy says. But it turns out that, uh, in a sense, there are no real experts in how society should run. You know, there are lots of people with lots of opinions. So that's why, of course, we have the expert civil servants who do particular roles. But in the end, it should be subject to a democratic review. And so I emphasize a lot in my books uh, the importance of uh, keeping this discussion open. One of the principles I've got is transparency, which is that we shouldn't be having these discussions behind closed doors as much as possible should be published. Another principle is accessibility, which means that as these uh, discussions are communicated, we should find ways to ensure that uh, people aren't put off by lots of long words and abstruse uh, language and jargon. So accessibility. And another principle is that of a disclosure. So that if you're involved in one of these discussions and you happen to have vested interests in trying to steer the regulations in one way or another, that needs to be highlighted so people are aware of it. So you may be an expert, but you should also communicate, well, I'm an expert and I happen to be employed or I'm receiving money from this uh, think tank, which is in turn receiving money from the cork industries, say, and that needs to be highlighted and made clear. So the d democratic principle is very important. The other thing that technocracy can't provide, of course, is the overall direction. It can often say, if you want to achieve certain things, this is the most efficient way of doing it. It still can't tell you what you should be aiming at. And so the thing that provides the direction, in my view of the world, is the transhumanist goal of transcending where we are today and making us significantly healthier, significantly smarter, significantly happier, and uh, significantly freer as well in the full sense of freedom, not just in freedom to speak and freedom to believe. Because you see, people would say that there's a lot of trouble with democracy when you have an uneducated or uninformed populace. Um, and some would point to the re uh, latest elections uh, with Donald Trump, uh, who by one count said something like 2,000 lies uh, or untruths, uh, I think the New York Times called it during the election campaign. Whereas uh, George W. Bush and Barack Obama had like a dozen for their whole presidency or something like that, supposedly. Um, anyway, but the point here was different. The point was that, you see, even when the, the fathers of, of the American constitution and political system were creating their system of checks and balances, they were very concerned uh, about the people. <laughs> that that the people who were uneducated, uh, couldn't read at the time, most of them, uninformed, etc., could sort of push politics towards bad end. Uh, and which is why they created the Senate, by the way, as a sort of a check uh, and, and balance over... Uh, you know, the, the, the lower house. Um, and so how do we balance these things within your book? Like, do you have any kind of equivalent uh, to the Senate in your sort of model? So I haven't spelt out more uh, uh, in detail any such model, but I have written quite a long chapter on democracy and inclusion uh, which uh, several reviewers have told me they thought that's the most important chapter in the whole book. 
because I do look indeed at these criticisms of democracy and I argue that uh, you know it's not just that democracy is better than everything else and all the other systems have got their problems, as Churchill said. Actually, democracy is much more of a positive than that. It is a means to get everybody involved. But democracy, emphatically, is not just about, well, every so often we can vote. It's about the whole conversation and engagement. And it's true. Uh, many electors currently have a very flaky understanding of many of the issues that they're voting on. So the answer to that is to make it easier for them to get involved in the conversation, to improve the caliber of conversation. Uh, now that's hard because there are many people who delight in distorting it because they want to put their own uh, spin on things. And so people will, in Britain, for example, portray immigrants in the worst light possible. Or the claim that you would save 250 million a week or something like that, which we knew was false. <laughs> That's right. So, and for all kinds of reasons, we do, many of us attach to these false claims and uh, propagate them more. Well, let's uh, use the principles of uh, technology to more quickly highlight the, not just when words are being misspelt or not just when grammar is debatable, but when things are factually questionable. So in due course, whenever such a statement is made, there will be the equivalent of Snopes or Wikipedia or something pops up alongside it. And thankfully, there are people working on this to an extent. Uh, we just need to accelerate it. Now, it's controversial, of course, because who, who decides what's uh, factual and what's not factual? Uh, whenever you point out to, for example, a dyed-in-the-wool Republican that they, something in Snopes refutes some of their pet theories, they'll shrug their shoulders and say, Snopes, that's funded by Democrats. We, we don't need to trust it. So it's, it's hard. And you can point out on the contrary that Snopes debunks many of the myths the other way as well. So, uh, But still, it's hard work. Uh, but over time, just as people by and large have quite a good feeling for what Wikipedia says, over time, we must get more and more people who come to trust at least some of the statements. So this will prevent people from being so misled. And what about the claim that politics is merely a reflection of human nature? Nasty, brutish and short. <laughs> so we have to improve human nature and by improving human nature, uh, and we can do that in all kinds of ways, including education, including uh, programs of meditation, improving lots of other things we might talk about, it will allow us to have better electors and better politicians. So do we need better humans for better politics then? So and that's something I look at in another chapter. It's, uh, I think, another central chapter of the book. It's called Humans and Superhumans. And I argue that trying to fix politics without also addressing these big issues in human nature is going to be very tough indeed. And I think it is better if we can use technology to address the, frankly, the defects of human nature, by which I mean we are often too xenophobic and tribalistic. We often get too angry too quickly. We are too self-righteous. When I say we, I'm definitely including myself in all this. I see these same tendencies in myself. And there are various other things which are well-known cognitive biases. We prioritize what we remember rather than the objective data. And we are too easily misled by other cognitive biases, which all made sense once upon a time. These biases probably did help us to survive in the very different circumstances of early hominid evolution. 
that we now are danger of uh, making very bad choices unless we can overcome these tendencies. So how do we change human nature? So it's not a single thing. There's no pill. We can't just put chlorine in the water and that fixes it. So it's going to be done pragmatically. It's going to be done uh, by figuring out which technologies work and which don't work. Uh, we are, I think, improving humans historically. We are, not, we are healthier. On the whole, we have a higher IQ. We are more literate, so that's a step in the right direction. But then we need to do an extension of what we have already happened. So we need better education systems that people can learn more quickly. We need systems that gently tap us on the shoulder when we are getting too stuck in a rut, in a way that a good friend might be able to say, you know, you're taking this too one-sidedly. You need the ability. So we can have AI systems that help us in this, and also collectively we can help each other not to be so blindsided. And then there's things like uh, nutrition and drugs. So I'm a, f I'm a fan of the principle of smart drugs. I can't yet say that any of them work particularly well, but just as people take caffeine or alcohol or various other substances to help them concentrate or be creative, I think before long we will have things that put us into a better state of flow more reliably, uh, allow us to concentrate, and uh, also highlight to us uh, when we are being uh, narrow-minded or bloody-minded or overly angry. A little, a little beeble will go off and we'll realize, okay, I need to breathe now. I need to get back into my calm place. And then we can uh, go forwards. So I list a number of things. It's called biohacking in general. Which of these biohacking mechanisms are going to work and which don't work? Can't say in advance. We need to evaluate them all carefully. Being aware of the commercial pressures that some of these companies are under to distort and exaggerate their findings and capabilities, but let's share this as a community. And I do expect that over the next 10 years, we're going to find more and more practices that work. Just as, and I'm sure you will tell me that various kinds of diet make you uh, clearer and more focused and a higher level of consciousness. I, I believe that is the case. Yeah, and of course, you're referring to my sort of uh, plant-based diet for the last couple of years, so I can report that it's been the best thing I've ever done for myself. But it's not the topic of our conversation today. So um, one of the criticisms that people generally have towards transhumanism, whether fairly or unfairly, is especially when you start talking about changing human nature would be, of course, eugenics. Right, So people would say, well, look, David, we tried that before. The eugenics movement was popular across the world on both sides of the Atlantic, late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, Germany employed some of the smartest uh, scientists uh, and did some horrendous uh, human experiments uh, that went beyond even the sort of any ethical consideration for the suffering of the people involved. But and we know where that brought us to. So uh, how do you address that concern that people say? So every time you mention change human nature, people or even transhumanism and put them together, let alone then people would say you're talking about eugenics and that's a no-no. So eugenics, as you've described it, was uh, one extreme version and a very small-minded version a mistaken version of how, how to go about improving the caliber of uh, human life. But uh, it doesn't take away the fact that various changes in our biology 
do improve us. Uh, we don't need to go all the way to changing our genetics. We have vaccinations. We have inoculations. That's a change in our biology, and that makes us better. It may well be that other changes, perhaps in our genetics, perhaps in our epigenome, or perhaps in our biome, which is all the stuff we've got in our gut, uh, perhaps in the mix of chemicals that's in our brain, will improve us. And uh, let's uh, evaluate that by experiment, objectively. It turns out, of course, that historically some people went far too far, uh, uh, changing biology to try and uh, improve humans, and it was a mistake. But equally, other people who believed in uh, the influence of the environment over humans, uh, Marxist, doctrinaire Marxists went far too far as well. And they said, well, if we change parts of the environment, if we send our young students out to work in the fields, as Mao did during the Cultural Revolution, uh, he, he had the theory that it would make them all better people. And uh, they're now referred to as the sort of the lost generation because it, it maybe taught them how to grow certain kinds of rice. It didn't make them uh, better people particularly. So there's an example in which uh, we don't say as a result, oh, therefore we shouldn't try and change the environment. We shouldn't try to educate. We shouldn't send people to training courses just because in an extreme form it failed. So in the same way, I'm saying let's evaluate it carefully what might work and what might not work without uh, presupposing the answer in advance. So I don't know whether there will be genetic changes that I will want to apply to myself in the future. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But uh, I don't want to rule it out, uh, doctrinaire. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, one of the sort of most politically charged things lately is the claim that we are likely, due to you know automation, robotization, and the rise of artificial intelligence, we are very likely to get to a point where we start experiencing this new phenomenon uh, coined as a term by John Maynard Keynes uh, in the 1930s called uh, uh, technological unemployment. So where does that fit within a techno-progressive politics that you're suggesting we, we, we follow? Uh, is that a real phenomenon? And what do we do to address it if you believe so? So, as we said at the beginning, we should look seriously at what impact exponentially changing technology might bring. People sometimes just look at this phase when it's been overhyped and they say, oh, don't worry. Uh, some people are losing their jobs, but they're able to retrain, not anticipating that in the future, the pace of uh, improvement of robots or AI or automation will actually go faster than their ability to retrain. To give you one recent example from just like a couple of days ago, Steve Morris posted a comment on my blog saying, well, Nicola, you talk about technological unemployment, but actually the uh, record of employment in the United States is currently at its highest since the record has begun. In other words, there's never been a larger percentage of the population that's employed currently, according to him. So it's percentage rather than just the number of people working, because sometimes people will say, well, there's more people working. But uh, of course, the population of America has been growing fast as well. But it, it may well be that people are in work, but many people are, are in work that isn't paying particularly well. So as alongside the principle of technological unemployment, we should look at the principle of technological underemployment. And the median salary in America 
uh, I believe in real terms, uh, hasn't changed much since arguably the 1970s. Of course, the mean salary has gone up because the very wealthy are doing particularly well. The ones who are fortunate enough to have the skills that they uh, are in this dwindling set of jobs that pay incredibly well. But many others are not uh, benefiting from that gains in productivity. So I would say, even if it hasn't happened yet, then uh, the principle of uh, AI being able to do everything that humans can do, which is something I believe there's very strong evidence for, means at some stage, and I would argue within a couple of decades, it's very likely that the thing will change. And I'll give an example, the example of horses. And many people have given this example, but i like to dig into it a little bit more because it's way back in the 19, 1820s, I'm sorry. I think there's a famous painting by a British cartoonist, George Cruikshank, who in 1829 predicted that horses would be turned into dog food because of the invention of the steam engine. And the horses are looking panicked in this picture because, well, they're not long, no longer going to have a work. Now, it turns out, uh, from a short time perspective, in fact, for nearly 100 years, that was a bad prediction because as the trains improved and as paddle uh, boats improved, there was more work for horses to do, which was taking things to and from the trains. And so the population of horses grew much faster in America than the population of humans. But then eventually, it turned out that the jobs which horses were still able to do could be done better by a next wave of automation, which was the, the car and the tractor, which initially people said, well, it won't happen because, you know, car, they're too dangerous cars. They're too much sparks. They're too noisy. They're too heavy. And there are all kinds of uh, theoretical reasons some people had as to why cars would never displace horses. But then very quickly, uh, there's a couple of famous photographs, one in 1903, of uh, the Easter parade in New York, in which if you look very carefully, you can see one uh, horseless carriage and all the others are horses. But 10 years later, 1913, the numbers have changed the round. So that prediction that eventually horses would be lose their jobs uh, came true, not straight away, but eventually. And so it's the same, I believe, with displacing humans from the workforce. So I'm, uh, I go into these arguments quite a lot in chapter four of my book, because uh, when I talk as a futurist in London, I very frequently get consultants saying, oh, X, oh, Y, and they give a number of arguments as to why there's nothing to worry about. And I try and counter these arguments with a lot of uh, thinking. And in the end, I say, well, the answer is uh, we must uh, embrace unemployment as a way of life. We must embrace uh, no longer working to live. And this is a cultural and ideological change. For a long, long time, we've lived under the sort of Protestant work ethic, it's been called, although it applies across the world, not just in Protestant countries. The principle that if you don't work, then you're a second-class citizen or a, or a scrounger, and you don't really deserve a well, it turns out that very few people in the not-too-distant future, maybe 20 years, maybe sooner, maybe later, won't be able to earn their living. And so we have to transition to a society that enables that. Yeah, to me, it's kind of like many people want to be rich so that, individually speaking, so that they can afford to get to a point where they don't have to work anymore, right? That's kind of the point. So that you can be free, personally speaking, right? Well, why don't we translate this to sort of the collective uh, level of analysis and say, well, just like individually we want to do that, we want to be free, and to be free, we have to stop sort of 
slaving the nine to five or whatever the occupation to make a living we're forced to do now. Likewise, collectively, when we're rich enough as a civilization or as a nation, we should be able to afford ourselves to um, provide for people to be free, right? To not be enslaved by the routine to make a living, to earn their daily bread or to put food and food on the table or shelter over their head and get some clothes and or education or health care or what have you. Uh, so to me, it's it's it, it's totally logically coherent and a, a logical continuation of the individual desires taken to the collective sphere or the political sphere, if you will. Absolutely. And it is uh, striking that many of the people who criticize uh, uh, normal people normal people for wanting to get money without working often they themselves they are in a situation where they get lots of money without working because of inherited wealth or because of what they did earlier in their career when they've accumulated often by just good fortune frankly they happen to invest in the right place and they are now in that same situation where they would like to criticize others or simply because people want to get people from not working, but from their money working for them, right? That's another idea of the rich people. Get your money to work. Don't work for money, but rather get your money to work for you, right? But ultimately, the goal is, again, the same, to not work for money. You, as a human being, you don't want to work for money, right? And you don't want to change time for money because time is limited. It's one of our few very scarce resources that we have at least you know, for the foreseeable future until we sort of uh, have defeated aging or something. But anyway, so it, it's again sort of a, a logical inconsistency to me. Um, and this is why we need a new vision. We can't have the vision that let's go back to the 1950s or the 1970s or whenever. Uh, that's not tenable. We need a, a new vision of uh, humanity existing in a different configuration altogether from in the past, a configuration in which the, there is abundant uh, produce from uh, automation, which will take care of all of us and allow us to explore whatever we, we would like to explore. Now, let me ask you this, though, because we were talking about technological unemployment. If I remember correctly, peak horse as a phenomenon was reached something in the mid 1920s, like 1927 or something like that. People argue about it. Maybe 1910, I think I quote in my book somewhere. Uh, you're talking about the picture in your book between 1903 and 1913, I think, and how everything changed in the picture. But I think the peak number of horses in the US was reached at about 27 million. Uh, and I'm quoting off the top of my memory. And that was reached somewhere after the end of World War One, so it was in early 1920s or mid 1920s, because there was still uh, some increased demand uh, after the war for horses, and then it dropped off. But anyway, I'm just using this as a setup for my question, which is to say, so if we reached peak horse demand in the 1920s, let's say, arguably. Uh, What's the period or the timeline before we reach peak, peak human demand? In other words, at what time do you foresee technological unemployment would start be uh, an observable phenomenon on the uh, curves of the economists? So I think there is an argument that we're already seeing some of it in the technological underemployment rather than the technological unemployment. So it's already seeing some signs. 
people talk about the precariat. So it's not the proletariat, it's the precariat. It's people who've got jobs, but it's in the gig economy and they really don't know how, how much money is going to come in at any stage soon. So I think we're seeing some indications that it's there. When is it going to be a bigger phenomenon? Well, uh, responsible futurists will say we, we don't know for sure because it depends on the various uh, technological innovations happening, which you can't foretell exactly in advance. It also depends upon the pace in which society is willing to accept this. And that, again, isn't something we can foretell with full accuracy. It turns out that opinions seem to change more quickly these days than in the past. Once upon a time, it would take a long time for an idea such as women are equal with men. It took a long, long time for people to get used to uh, the idea more recently that maybe homosexuals should be allowed to marry. That actually, in the end, was adopted quite quickly. So the pace of the change in cultural ideas and the pace of the change in technology is an unknown. But then we can say, well, there are scenarios that at least are credible. And I argue in my book that there are scenarios uh, of credibility that maybe within 20 years, uh, this will be a very strong phenomenon indeed. And that uh, by then, uh, only a small number of people will be able to earn their living by working. And so even though we don't know the schedule for with any confidence, any real strong confidence, we should be preparing for it. And so that's why we should think, how do we transition? What are the possible transition mechanisms? Because Something like a universal basic income, which we haven't directly spoken about yet, but it's some way in which the abundance of automation can be shared around. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be difficult. It's probably going to be mistakes in its implementation. People will experiment, and the initial experiment on a small scale will show some results, and then when it's applied more widely in a bigger scale, there'll probably be unexpected uh, consequences. So it's going to take a while for us to figure this out. So we should get ready sooner rather than later. We shouldn't just wait until one day we wake up and say, oh, my goodness, technological unemployment has suddenly crept up in the last year or two. And we've been distracted by discussing Brexit or whatever it is that's been occupying our political uh, minds. Uh, we should uh, think about it hard. And the good news is more and more people are thinking about it seriously. So I see, I think, that one of the political parties in Italy that did well in the recent election uh, I think it's the five-star movement uh, have already said they want a policy of a basic income. So let's see how they get on with uh, fleshing that out. Silvio Berlusconi is back and the anti-immigrant xenophobic Italian nationalists got very strong representation and arguing now even if they should run the new or create the new government uh, in Italy. So that's another sort of a somewhat discouraging event for me. So it shows that the pop, the electorate as a whole is deeply disenchanted with the status quo. So the, the fairly technocratic government which was in place, I may, may get the name wrong, I think it was Mario Renzi, who was a clever, skillful guy, but uh, the, many of the voters felt that they weren't, uh, acts, they weren't sharing enough of the benefits that could be possible. So there is this widespread reaction against the status quo. And unless there is a positive vision, like a techno-progressive transhumanist future, they're likely to try some other vision, whether it's the League, uh, the Northern League. Uh, I think that was what they used to be called. I'm not sure what it's still called in Italy or the other uh, xenophobic parties. So we certainly saw that in uh, Britain. Why people voted to leave the EU is a complex matter with many factors, but part of them was a dissatisfaction with what they thought the status quo in society was, which uh, they didn't like. 
So we have to show people that actually sticking with the, the main political processes as they evolve in a, 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 for a techno-progressive direction is uh, visionary and exciting and something deserving support rather than uh, jumping to some uh, much more dangerous uh, new political movement. Well, speaking of that much more dangerous new political movement, do you think that we could, we we have the, we can have the timeline and the time frame to implement those uh, changes within the political process speedily enough to avoid those uh, sort of uh, extremist political reactions, or even let's just call them revolutions or social upheaval or armed dissent and so on? Yes, there definitely is possibilities, uh, in part because political change can happen more quickly now than in the past. If I look at what happened in France with Emmanuel Macron's uh, En Marche party coming out of nowhere and becoming the leading party, uh, it's sort of similar to the idea of forwards. Uh, it's not quite a techno-progressive because it doesn't have all the, the transhumanist elements that you and I have been speaking about, but it's a sign of uh, people willing to give it a chance. And so I think that in at least some countries in the world, people will uh, have these more forward-looking techno-progressive ideas and adopt them to an extent. And I think at least some of them will be successful enough that other countries will say, you know what, I'd like to do what they're doing there. It's a bit like what's happening in Estonia to an extent with uh, e-citizenship and uh, the digital governance. People looking at that and saying, you know what, maybe we should be having a bit of that in our countries as well. So it's this principle of uh, local experimentation, figure out what seems to be working and then adopt it more widely. Am I complacent? Do we have lots of time? No, but uh, we have the ability to go fast if we go together. As I said earlier, you know, if we really want to go far, we need to do this together rather than just trying it in some lone wolf approach. Let me ask you this, though. Um, I just watched uh, sort of another interview with Elon Musk Uh, at South by Southwest uh, from a day or two ago, I think. And uh, he was saying how, again, artificial intelligence is the scariest thing in the world. It's the biggest danger in the world. Where do you put that on your sort of list of dangers uh, as you rank them? Where does AI rank there? Is that the most dangerous, scariest thing for you? Or is, is, is there other things above it? Well, interesting question. I didn't consciously produce a prioritized list of the most dangerous thing. I think the dangers are in combination. So when big disasters happen, it's usually not just one thing that's gone wrong, it's several things that go wrong at once. So you said earlier, you are more worried by human stupidity than by artificial general intelligence. I would say it's the combination. It's people who think that they're clever, but actually are stupid in various ways that they might develop uh, or take advantage of artificial general intelligence. They may say, oh, I'm going to handle this. Uh, I know what I'm doing. And they and they fail to handle it. If I had to pick one thing, however, the thing that could most uh, cause uh, disaster, it probably would be artificial general intelligence uh, with bugs or with a mistaken specification or with a combination of circumstances that people didn't uh, properly anticipate or artificial general intelligence, which initially was written safely, but somebody came along and hacked into and uh, for various reasons thought they could make it go faster and get some benefit from it and, it and it went wrong. But it's not going to go wrong entirely by itself. It's going to go wrong in combination with other human problems, such as our human stupidity, 
or possibly the race towards war driven by the destabilizing uh, geopolitical framework that we've got. And uh, there is a race to acquire leadership in AI. Vladimir Putin said recently that uh, the, whoever leads in the field of AI will rule the world. I mean, I've got the exact wording right there. And that's probably a fair observation. You know? If somebody has a first capability in AI, they may be able to control the infrastructure of other countries and any other country that's causing them a pain, they can just sort of dial them down. It makes you... It makes me really scared too, because there is no an international anti-AI treaty along the lines of the, let's say, nuclear weapons proliferation treaty or the anti-ballistic missile treaty or something like that, which means that you can have all kinds of conferences in Osilomar about beneficial AI, but Putin can develop his own version of AI to rule the world. To, to aim at becoming the ruler of the world, right? And that, that, of course, doesn't apply only to Putin, but he is like among the most capable people to manifest, you know, educated professionals behind that idea, as well as considerable resources with very few other place, countries could match, right? So, <laughs> so there's no easy answers here. But the Asilomar process is a start, and what they want to do is to gradually formulate a series of proposed regulations and then get to support from politicians in due course. Most of the people in that Silomar process say it's too early to actually put regulations into law because it's unclear what the consequences would be. And people are afraid if they put regulations in place too early, it will have counterproductive effects. And I think that's right. But this activity in the partnership on AI... Uh, which is possibly the most important organization in the world, uh, they are going to come up with some proposals. They have economists such as Jeffrey Sachs and Andrew McAfee and Eric Brynjolfsson uh, helping to give them advice. Max Tegmark, Nick Bostrom, Jan Tallinn, Elon Musk, Roman Yampolsky, they were all there. They are bright people, definitely. There isn't yet sufficient representation from China or Russia. Uh, there are some smaller Chinese uh, companies that have got some connections and membership, but none of the big five, Baidu or Tencent or Xiaomi or Alibaba, and there's a few others, and none of them, as far as I know, I, I, this may be overtaken by circumstances, but the last I checked, none of them had uh, formally joined the partnership on AI. So this needs to be worked. It needs a great deal of attention. And there is a risk, in fact, that whenever AI is discussed, we just focus on the short-term implications of AI, such as technological unemployment. And that's very important. But uh, we shouldn't uh, just talk about technological unemployment. We should talk about the risks of uh, AI being installed more fully in control of society and then uh, having consequences we didn't anticipate, which is why one of the most... Uh, the public talk I give most often is exactly on this topic. It's assessing the risk of a super intelligence. And I look at the arguments of Elon Musk. I look at the arguments of critics of Elon Musk, including Mark Zuckerberg and others. And I try in that discussion not to get bogged down in just the technological unemployment question, because 
we need to get on to the next wave. And one of my themes as a futurist is the future arrives in waves. And if you're just looking at the next wave, you might uh, fail to appreciate what's coming in the wave after that. Mm -hmm. Well, another wave that's been very big in media lately is, of course, Bitcoin or the blockchain technology. And uh, many people don't hide uh, sort of the profound political implications it can or will have. Um, and of course, it's also super popular in sort of techno-libertarian uh, circles, including the transhumanist techno-libertarian circles. Um, and with in terms of governance, uh, many people have come up with suggestions about sort of um, anything from electronic voting to direct uh, democracy to fluid governance and or fluid democracy and, and all kinds of ideas like that. Where does blockchain or the derivatives thereof fit within the roadmap of a techno-progressive transpolitics? So full disclosure here, I think that... Uh... Of all the topics that I address in my book, this is the one which I might be most likely to change my mind in the next six months. I wasn't entirely satisfied by what I wrote on this. I, I covered it in the final chapter. I talked about the benefits of decentralization and frictionless organizations and moving bottlenecks. And I very much believe in that. And I think blockchain has that potential to remove bottlenecks in uh, various organizations and various processes. But I also observe from many of the interactions I have with people who talk about blockchain that frequently what they're saying is a problem which blockchain could solve could very likely be solved without using blockchain. It could be solved by using a less energy intensive decentralized database. They don't need the proof of work mechanism or a proof of stake mechanism in there. So. It is in the field of uh, a great deal of overhype. It's sort of in the analogous situation to internet in the pre-dot-com bust. So in that, in many companies that were set up with a flimsy understanding failed and crashed and burned. But despite the dot-com crash, there were other companies which at the time were fairly small but became more and more significant later on. So I think it's going to be the same with blockchain, that there will be some very important uh, changes in terms of what governance is possible and in what uh, systems are available. I'm not yet confident enough to say I know what they are. So this is an area that uh, I want to organize more debates on. And I've said at the end of my book, I think a lot of it's overhyped. I think some of it may even be dangerous uh, in the sense that people assume that if it's blockchain, then it's safe. A bit like people used to assume if it's got artificial general intelligence, it's safe. Well, it turns out uh, it may not be entirely safe and uh, there could be lots of uh, angry people. Bill Gates went on the record recently to claim that it's very clear that Bitcoin has been responsible pretty directly for the death of a number of people. <laughs> I guess suicides with people losing their fortunes. No, no, people who were enabled by cryptocurrencies to buy drugs, which turn out to be like fentanyl and stuff like that. And were uh, so, in other words, they're enabling uh, and therefore almost directly responsible because without, let's say, Bitcoin, 
you wouldn't be able to buy this drug. And therefore, when you get the drug, it turns out it's a fake drug it's, it's, uh, and it kills you. Um, and so it wouldn't have happened, his argument goes, if you didn't have this enabling factor of Bitcoin allowing you to purchase off the dark web or somewhere like that you know, all those things. And that could be even uh, guns, for example, right? So uh, you can kill yourself by overdose or by uh, purchasing fake drugs, or you can kill other people by uh, buying like uh, an illegal weapon and etc. So there are lots of teething problems, maybe big teething problems. And uh, but that's no reason to say, well, let's stop all of it. It's a reason to have an open, honest discussion. And uh, that's what I, one of the projects I want to pick up in the wake of having the book published. It's to say, well, there are some areas, frankly, where I wasn't satisfied with the analysis I could come up with. Uh, I think what I've written is correct as far as it goes, but it's certainly not the last word on the subject. Let me ask you this. At the end of your book, you speak about uh, the fact that transhumanist politics must be integrative. Um, does integration mean global governance for you? So I think there because will be... That's the line that many people have been pushing recently. Even people like Yuval Noah Harari, of course, and many others are observing that the problems that we're facing today, like humanity's grand challenges, are global problems. And yes, we have a strong response uh, in terms of nationalist politics, but nationalism doesn't have a response to humanity's grand challenges because they are not confined by national borders, they are transnational. And to solve transnational or global problems like climate change or even things like, you know, uh, international crime or flow of people like refugees uh, or even markets, banking system, uh, pollution, uh, desertification, water issues, rename, you name it, you need global governance. So does integrative mean global governance for you? Uh, it means two things. I mean integrative in the sense that uh, people who have initial different uh, perspectives, whether it's more libertarian or more progressive, needs to, there needs to be a system of thinking that welcomes them both and it helps them to find their, their place. So that's the first thing I mean by integrative. But absolutely, I do believe there are a whole number of problems that cannot be solved nationally and will require some element of international cooperation. And so in chapter 11, I reframe that sentence, which you kindly quoted from the beginning of chapter one. I reframe it as there's no escape. The journey to a healthier society inevitably involves international politics. That doesn't mean to say everything needs to go beyond, go in front of an international court. Many things can indeed be handled locally, whether it's a city or a region or a conglomeration of states. But there are things which will require uh, agreement on the global level. Otherwise, uh, there's going to be too many temptations for people to cheat. But agreement is not enough. People would say, look at Kyoto, Copenhagen and Paris, and you still have non-binding targets, which people can fake, countries can fake or even obviously flounder 
and yet there's no penalties for them. Whereas if you had some kind, and so agreements are meaningless unless you have some kind of overarching structure to enforce penalties and enforce those agreements. And therefore they would say you require a global government. Otherwise, within any other framework, there is no cost to cheating by any of those big uh, countries. There's no penalty and therefore no solution would be achieved. Well, I haven't given up on the Paris system yet, although there was non-binding. And countries have a moral force to counter, to contend with. So if they fail to keep the targets, which they said, uh, currently there's no financial penalty. There's, the, the prime ministers don't get put into prison anywhere, but they will have the, their own uh, electorate to answer to. And they, they, may, they may suffer some other loss of reputation. So I'm not giving up on that altogether, but I, I'm sympathetic to what you're saying or suggesting here that we probably do need some uh, better mechanisms of international agreement as uh, the United Nations did, did give itself some force occasionally to intervene with the agreement of the Security Council to sort out uh, very bad local problems. Now, how this is going to happen, I frankly don't quite know. Uh, I don't think it will just be the same as the current uh, United Nations framework. I think we need to get there stage by stage. And I would like to evolve what's already happening in that the climate change, international climate change community to see what can be done in that organization in its own right. And then maybe using some of the principles of justice. It, it's been suggested that uh, people who suffer consequences of adverse weather may be able to sue companies in the global courts and say, well, you Exxon, you knew what you were doing, uh, just as the tobacco companies were in due course sued for their uh, hiding the evidence about tobacco and making people addicted. And then they had to pay huge financial penalties in due course. It may be, and Jeffrey Sachs, the economist, has been advocating this, uh, climate justice, I think is his phrase. So it may be that the existing uh, world mechanisms might be able to evolve to apply more force onto countries or companies that are uh, failing to live up to the agreements. I don't know the answer to this, uh, but we can't just throw up our hands in horror and say uh, 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 world government is bad news, so we're not even going to consider it. We have to figure out what's the right lean kind of uh, global co coordination. What do we really need it for? And let's have it in these cases. And let's ensure that it's not dominated by just a few powerful countries or a few powerful individuals. I'm a fan of Jeffrey Sachs myself. Uh, but let's take down the discussion from the global level to the individual level. And let me ask you this, because time is advancing and we've been talking for nearly two hours now. It's amazing to me. Um, anyway, how quickly time, time flies, but what can the average person that's watching this do in order to transcend politics in their life right now? How do you transcend politics as an individual? Connecting to a community, which is working on some of the problems we've discussed. So get involved with uh, perhaps the Future of Life Institute or with the Transhumanist Party in the, in the US, or the IEET, or many of the other organizations that I've listed. Uh, join in there, figure out what projects need help, projects to clarify what a better set of regulations would be. 
how how could we solve the the problems we've just been talking about with uh, the risks of countries cheating on their climate emissions, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, or get involved in figuring out what's the real and what's hype in the blockchain for governance. So find a particular project and work on that for a small time and then uh, reflect on what's been achieved. So that's the agile process. Don't try and uh, boil the ocean at one go. Try and uh, with the help of a community, which you can find either in the real world or online, identify a project which uh, you feel some affinity for, take responsibility for getting something done, make a commitment and try and fulfill it. And then with uh, the, the, the journey of a thousand miles starts with a small step or something along these lines. So that's what Agile means. Take that small step, reflect on it, figure out again what the best small step is next time. And over a while, we'll build a more powerful movement that has more and more effect in the world as a whole. Now, speaking of small steps, let me give you, I'm a big fan of your book, as I said, but let me give you one criticism, and that is the transhumanist narrative. I think it may be the case that it's time for us to move beyond transhumanism. Maybe it's time for us to start talking about, I don't know, transspeciesism or, or just forget the trans part and just talk about, I don't know, ethics and compassion or I haven't quite figured it out. But basically the bottom line is that we need to write a new story, a new narrative for humanity. Because you see, transhumanism sounds great and good now, but what it does is it centralizes humanity. It makes us gods <laughs> in effect, right? Because it used to be the case that, you know, we were just, uh, you know, uh, one of, so historically speaking, we had animism and we were all equals with all the other animals and species in the world. Because one day we would kill an animal to eat, then the next animal a tiger would get, the next day a tiger would eat us. And so, and, and stones and trees all had a soul and we could even communicate with them. And we were all kind of children of, of the world or, or the nature or whatever. Then we invented sort of monotheism, right? So first we had animism, which is to say everything had a soul and everything was equal to everything else. Then we created pantheism, many gods, then eventually we brought it down to monotheism, one god, and we became a reflection or a creation of God. And we got promoted, whereas all the other species got demoted, right? Then eventually with the Enlightenment, uh, with the enlightenment and the scientific revolution, we killed God and we took his place. And now with transhumanism, we are in the process of transcending humanity and becoming gods, overcoming with science and technology, overcoming our limitations, such as death, right? And of course, immortality is one of the most notable features of, of God. Uh, others, other things like uh, um, uh, all-knowing or omnipresence and, and almightiness may come with science and technology. But the effect is that Following that discourse, we are sidelining all the other species. And that's giving us a justification to basically kill and enslave all of them 
as we see fit based on the justification that in this narrative that we had previously, the humanist narrative, currently the transhumanist narrative, humanity is in the center of the universe. So we are the measure of everything. We are the smartest species in the world. And therefore we can do as we see fit with all the other species in the world. And so from that point of view, transhumanism, looking from the point of view of another species, uh, and that could be another species from our planet, or it could be an alien species, or it could be artificial intelligence even. But especially from the point of view of the other species on our planet, transhumanism is like colonialism, because in effect it, it pretends to be a liberation kind of a philosophy uh, or ideology, but in fact leads to their enslavement and destruction and even pushing them extinct, right? So I have many people who send me messages uh, on, on uh, social media and say, it's okay if we, cre if we make those animals extinct. We're going to bring them back after we become gods and we're going to bring, you know, the Tasmanian devil and the mammoth and all the other animals, the dodo and all the other animals that we've put that we've made extinct right that's where how far our arrogance has gone that you know it's okay to kill them now because we're going to bring them back later and so my concern is that and imagine then we have the next worrisome step is that imagine then we have ai come to to be and then ai doesn't come up with humanism or transhumanism but comes up with a new ideology that we might call aiism which means that humanity used to be in the center of the universe, just like God used to be before that. And just like we killed God and replaced him with us, AI would kill us and, and put themselves in the center of everything. <laughs> and will then be the measure of everything. And we then do exactly what we're doing right now, which is to say, justify itself into killing 75 billion animals a year and 1.3 trillion fish or uh, other aquatic organisms and stuff like that. So my concern is that transhumanism simply doesn't go far enough, that we need a new narrative, that for us this may be a liberation kind of philosophy or ideology, but for all the animals and species outside of humanity, it's an enslavement species that could be the end of them just like colonialism was in Africa, right? We saw it as the white man's burden to go and save them and enlighten them and as our right, but actually from the other point of view, it was worse than it's ever been in the history of their country. <laughs> Slavery, destruction, wars, death, and so on. So in that sense, I don't see a suggestion of you going beyond that, but probably that's too, that's an unfair criticism because it's too much to ask probably from your book right so i would say this could be accomplished not by changing the narrative away from transhumanism but by clarifying one part of the transhumanist narrative uh, and i just you picked up rightly that I, I don't have any big discussion on this topic and if i were to rewrite the book now i might uh, slip in uh, a section or two on this but i would want to say that uh, if we really transcend our limits, uh, our evolutionary heritage gave us this uh, competitive relationship and destructive relationship with many of the other species on the planet. But if we uh, truly live up to our potential, then we will uh, stop 
having such a violent relationship with these other species. And that's uh, the true transhumanism. I need to think of the body. Transhumanism justifies that. Transhumanism says it's perfectly okay because you see, we are the measure of everything. We are the gods to be. We are the smartest species in the in the in the planet. We are the center of of the philosophical, economic, uh, ideological universe that we know of. I don't think uh, transhumanism says that uh, humanity is uh, somehow centerpiece. It says that uh, we are on a journey and that uh, actually the current form of human experience is at a relatively early phase of that journey. We don't know exactly what shape we're going to have in the future and uh, we envision post-human existence. Uh, and the transhuman, the trans means two things. It means transcending limitations in some readings, and it also means transitioning away from being human to being something else in the future. And I think both these meanings are correct. So it is conceivable that as we humans uh, evolve further under conscious direction, part of that evolution is a much more sympathetic view towards the other species that uh, we share this uh, planet with. We might want to uplift them, or we may simply want to stop uh, dealing with them in such a violent and exploitative way. And uh, technology will help us with that too. Mm. Now, I, just off the top of my head, and I may change my mind on that if I reflect on it more. So I, I'll put this in the in the in the H plus PDF page about my book. I'll put in a caveat here that is worth uh, further analysis. Yeah, to be honest, I'm struggling with all those ideas myself right now, and I've been sort of working on a book called Rewriting the Human Story, how our story determines our future. And it's very early on, even though I've been thinking about it for the last, you know, nine or 10 months or something. But uh, so my, my thinking here fluctuates a lot and it's very far from, from clear or consistent or coherent. But I'm just concerned that there are many things in transhumanism which make it incompatible with that vision of compassion. Uh, especially the ideas that, for example, which are part of the narrative, is that we are separate from the world, uh, because that's 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 part of the, uh, the the idea of humanism, right? There is this separation between us and nature and the rest of the world, and therefore we don't see that what we do to nature is actually what we do to us, and which has allowed us to inflict such enormous. Uh, cost on nature and all the other species, um, um, and and of course the other part of that narrative is is the narrative of of progress, right? That we've made this tremendous progress, uh, and maybe you know you can say that about humanity from the human point of view. But if you are any other species on the planet, you would say that progress has been their destruction. <laughs> I think that's fair. So, so just like colonialism, you know, helped progress in, in and even fuel maybe the Enlightenment or uh, uh, the Renaissance in Europe and stuff like that. Still, uh, the the silver that was mined in South America destroyed South America in the process of getting that money to Spain, for example, and 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 England and and all of that. Uh, right. So, progress for whom? So I think I will double down and say that this is a clarification of transhumanism rather than a refutation of transhumanism. And I'll point to an existing very powerful uh, strand within transhumanism, which uh, is associated with the name of David Pierce, 
who is one of the co-founders of the World Transhumanist Association. He has always emphasized not just uh, solving human problems, but solving problems throughout the whole sentient animal kingdom, this abolitionist movement. So that strand is there already. And whether it needs a different name or whether that can be just called the the right transhumanism or the, the correct transhumanism, uh, that's an open question. In terms of the word, uh, I have to reflect that uh, the transhumanist party in the UK went through quite a crisis of identity over the last uh, two years. And uh, some of it was, well, should we give up on this name? It's got many historical connotations. And we looked at lots of other alternatives and none of the other alternatives seemed compelling enough. And in the end, we said, well, maybe transhumanism wouldn't win a popularity contest today, but we have to look at the future. And we think that in the future, people will get more and more comfortable with that term. So we're going to own this name and use it. And perhaps we're redefining it in some aspects. Perhaps we're clarifying it in others. But we're sticking with this until such time as uh, we get a better insight. Mm-hmm. What is one question that you wish that I had asked you today, David, after two hours, but I haven't asked you? Well, there's lots of things in the book that we haven't had a chance to touch on. And so, but you couldn't possibly ask me about all the different chapters. Uh, Where can people find out about the book? Well, that's, uh, you can easily search search for transcending politics. Uh, I think this is probably one of the first hits for it. Or you can find out on the Transpolitica website. Other things, uh, what am I working on next? Well, I I actually want to extend this project, so it's not a case of doing something different. It's a case of developing these ideas further. Mm -hmm. And maybe applying them more and more in actual politics. Yes, actual politics, developing organizations which in some ways uh, live up to the principles. I said there's uh, a number of principles for democratic decision-making, techno-progressive decision-making. So we need to demonstrate by our actual uh, practice that they are feasible and not just some crazy uh, theoretical pipe dream. You had an endorsement in the book from the Alternative Party in the UK. Perhaps they can use part or all of it as a platform of a sort? Well, the people who are involved in the Alternative UK platform, which in turn is uh, associated with a party in Denmark, which actually has uh, members in parliament in Denmark, they have uh, spoken favorably of using some of these ideas. So I do want to take advantage of that positive relationship, but I also want to talk to people in almost every other political party uh, because uh, I don't want to say, well, I've got some disagreement with you on some ideology, therefore I'm not gonna talk to you. On the contrary, I believe in the integrative approach and I think there are men and women of goodwill and with uh, transhumanist, latent transhumanist sympathies which just need to be brought to the surface in all the major parties in the UK. Mm-hmm. So, David, today we've been chatting together for two hours and 13 minutes, if I have this right now, which is among the longest interviews I've done so far. I think I've been over this only once or twice. As always, each conversation is an open experiment. And let's see what the audience would say about how successful or unsuccessful we were today to connect with them and to raise some of those issues that both of us believe are very important and uh, would inevitably be a part of uh, the path to a better future for all of humanity. But if you are to perhaps summarize our whole discussion for the last two hours, or if you are just to send away our audience with a single most important message of your own choice, 
what would that be? A better politics is possible. A better politics is beckoning us forward. And it's up to each of us to hear that call and figure out how to get involved in it. David Wood, a better politics is possible. Thank you very much, David. My pleasure, Nicola. You've asked great questions. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation. 